Matthew chapter 5. This is the, uh, you know, normally you say things, the best is left till last. And so Jesus uh, does all the blesseds are, and then he says the final one, blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when people insult you, persecute you, and falsely, falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad, because great is your reward in heaven, for in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Blessed are you when people insult you, when they persecute you, and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me, Jesus. Rejoice and be glad. What a different mindset. What a totally different mindset. How many of us are saying, not me, Lord, I'll serve you, but don't persecute me. Of course, God doesn't persecute anyone. My prayer is that by the end of this morning, you're going to be saying, Father, I want more persecution. My prayer is that uh, you're going to pray with the early disciples, Lord, stretch out your mighty arm and give us boldness that we might serve you and that we might suffer for you. Not because we want to suffer, but we just it will be the inevitable backlash. What a strange thing to ask. You see, we want freedom, and freedom is being willing to die. The, 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 the severity and the, the, uh, the power of the suicide bombers and the, the power of many people who are fighting right now is they're not afraid to die for the wrong reasons. There is freedom that comes when, when, when life itself is something you're willing to lay down. But I'm very aware, even as I speak now, that speaking like that is an abstract, so it's, it's, it doesn't make any sense, and it seems just scary. And it is. And Jesus didn't come to bring suffering on earth. He came to rescue people who are already suffering. But we live in a fallen world of ideologies, of power corrupted, of kingdoms of this world. And we who follow Jesus should expect his kingdom to clash with the kingdoms of this world. Where people in this world are very um, disillusioned and weary is the quality of Christian lives they've seen. See, Jesus, the reason Jesus got a following is because he laid life down. And what, happen, what has happened in, in, in our culture is Christianity has been spoken about as some rules and behavior modifications, but it doesn't really have a lot of teeth when it comes to serving and love and power. What well, hasn't, and we want to reclaim that. I mean, think of it. When did you last experience something because of your relationship with Jesus? I'm not trying to put guilt on any of us, all right? Don't... You don't have, I'm not doing that, it's just a waste of time, but I'm merely just asking. When did you last experience something because of your following Jesus? I mean, some of us deserve to be persecuted because we're just obnoxious, you know, and you deserve to be, you know, because you're just a pain. I'm joking with you, all right? Don't get all upset now. And some people don't follow Jesus because, you know, he didn't answer my prayer for a new car in January. I mean, some of the stuff is silly. Um, but I, I want to go deeper than that, obviously. But it is worth asking, when was the last time something happened because of my allegiance to Jesus or I made choices because of my allegiance to Jesus? 
Because when I started the service, I talked about, you know, Jesus is Lord. And if he's Lord, then there is no other Lord. And that's not a popular message in our world. But to say Jesus is Lord does not mean I trample over everybody else who doesn't say he's Lord. It doesn't mean they don't have the right to follow whoever they believe in. God has given the right to people to follow whatever they want, but at the end of the day, he declares, I am God. And my heart is jealous for you, so I'm going to go and try and draw you to myself because I am the Lord of Lords and the King of Kings. So while we have respect for other religions and we have respect for other cultures, we still declare Jesus as Lord. But our challenge is that our, our, de- our declaration is with, is with such tenderness and courage and love that they are won over because of that, not because of arguments about truth, which has already switched so many people off. And that whenever I talk about persecution or suffering, I... I can't help but go back to uh, Eusebius. And Eusebius is a, is a Greek uh, historian who was writing in the second, third centuries uh, after Jesus was crucified, about 200 years after he was crucified, and putting together a lot of documents about the suffering of the early Christians. And uh, this is what somebody wrote. You know, if you want... Well, I'll get to that. The early church was hated by the society and government of the Roman Empire for various reasons such as the refusal of Christians to sacrifice to the gods. The empire went through many phases of demanding that the Christians sacrifice, which meant denying their faith or be killed, and the earliest attacks claimed the lives of many of the apostles. So Eusebius talks, for instance, about Peter and Paul, when they were, uh, he documented this, uh, Peter and Paul both were killed probably on the same day Thus then, you, when they were the fire, the the, uh, the the fire of Rome in when was it? Somebody probably knows this. I don't know. I'm not going to look it up here. But the fire of Rome in about uh, 60 BC, uh, AD. Uh, when the when the fire of Rome broke out and and three quarters of Rome was burned, Nero was accused of being responsible for it, and Nero um, didn't like to be held accountable for anything. So he began to uh, pass around a rumor that the Christians had done it and caught in that rumor and caught in that sort of sweep for justice and for not losing faith. Peter and Paul were in Rome and they were killed um, because of their following of Jesus. Thus then was Nero the first to be heralded as above all an an antagonist of God and stirred up murder... uh, to murder the apostles. It is related that in his day Paul was beheaded at Rome itself and that Peter likewise was crucified. So you follow Jesus for your life and served him like Paul and Peter and then somebody starts a fire and you get blamed for that and you get killed for that. And you say, where's God's justice in that? But these guys had already settled that they live in a hostile world. So they had already settled. I mean, kill me. You remember when Jesus met Peter on, the, on the, the shores of Galilee after the resurrection and he called him to serve him and he said, feed my sheep, feed my sheep and do you love me? And Peter wept over that because he was being healed of his rejection and cowardice and Jesus said, one day you will follow me and you will actually die in a way that uh, you're not really wanting to die. And Peter followed him anyway and years later that came true 
hundred years later, there was a guy called Polycarp who had followed Jesus for uh, his whole life. He was 86 years old. He was a bishop. And he was a man who uh, had served Jesus. As he probably knew John, apparently, and he was a second or third generation Christian. And uh, his martyrdom is, is, is well documented and is, is a, a famous martyrdom. It was, it was the first of the generations after the apostles. And you read the account of Polycarp and he's a man of 86 and they start looking for him and he, hi- he goes to a house and he stays there for a while. Then he goes to another house and stays there and they find him there. And, and uh, the Romans who are actually looking for him, the soldiers, who, who he's, he spends an hour praying before they take him away and they kind of really don't want to take him away. And then they take him into this massive arena where they're all baying for blood. And uh, the, the consul who's in charge of that tells him to renounce, renounce his allegiance to Jesus. Just name Caesar as Lord and you can go free. And he says this, his famous words are, 80 ye- 86 years I have served him, Polycarp declared, and he has done me no wrong. How can I blaspheme my king and my saviour? And he says, well, we'll bring fire on you. And he pretty much says, well, bring it on because it's nothing like the fire of hell that you're going to go through. The boldness of these people. And you go, why? Where do they get that from? Because they're just like us. Where do they get that kind of strength from? And I could read you an account which I've done years ago, I remember. about. I mean, this is one woman I would like to meet. Her name is Blandina. 177 AD, she was martyred. And the accounts, it'll take too long to read, but the accounts of Blandina's suffering are unbelievable. These people were taken into the arena of the Colosseum and they they faced animals or they faced people. They were beaten up. They were, uh, she was, went a number of times uh, and then she went one time and they tied her to a stake and they let wild animals out, but they weren't interested in her. They'd actually contorted her body and broken her bones, and, and she still didn't die, and the, and the animals didn't go after her, so they locked her up again. And then they brought her out again. They had this big thing called a frying pan. One of them was an electric w- a chair that they burned, and the other was a big frying pan with oil in it, and they put people in, and they rolled them around in that. The, the, the cruelty is, is something we wouldn't even begin to comprehend. And then uh, they eventually d- brought her out and they put her in a, a sort of rope uh, netting cage and they let her loose and, and some wild animals started just throwing her around and eventually she died. And there are many, many, many accounts. Um, you see, what I'm wanting to kind of remind us of is that every freedom is won at a price. And every freedom that isn't protected gets lost at a price. And what we are living in is a time of eroded freedoms. And because we've been so seduced by our right to freedom, we're in danger of losing it. I started ministry in Cape Town in 1981. And the first four years in Cape Town, we marched on Parliament a number of times. Outside the house I was living, police were terrorizing black school children and if I went out because I was living in a black suburb I mean I don't think it made much difference but I witnessed it and it was saying we have to stand for the 
the lack of education for black people at the time and for, for their rights in the name of Jesus. And thinking about that, it wouldn't surprise me to end my ministry in Canada taking a bullet. I hope that's not prophetic, but it wouldn't surprise me. I was really impressed by the stand of um, the woman, the mother, who, who challenged the school district here. Because, and Charlotte's not here, but she told me the story because they related to Randy. I don't know what the relationship is. Randy's daughter. Anyway, they, they, you know, they, she, all she was saying was, why should um, there be prayers prayed with a native Indian or not? in the schools when Christians aren't allowed to pray, why isn't it the same for all? And she had spent four months trying to get an answer and nothing happened. So she had the guts to say, all right, then let's take this further because I want an answer. And you read the insults, the backlash, the um, wrong interpretations that come out immediately. And I'm saying this because I'm totally committed to saying there is nothing we will not discuss here. And there is nothing that is beyond the pale for Christians. If Jesus is Lord, he's Lord of everything. So we better work out how we're going to respond. We're not going to put things under a, a rug. You don't get justice in this world. We as a church took a stand about biblical authority and sexuality with the Anglican Church of Canada. And our buildings were taken from us in a legal but immoral manner. Now that's forgiven. All I'm saying is it's not just. And so this woman has, you know, has gone, but I'm also saying this because I'm going to write a letter this week to the, I can never renounce, pronounce the name, Newt Chalmuth. I was so impressed with Kevin Watts and his response. It was gracious. It was saying we quite understand and it's not, the, it's not an issue as it's been portrayed. We have no desire to pr pr pressure anybody into our spiritual form. We're talking about a culture and a way of life. I was really impressed with that gracious response. You see, to stand for truth is not to beat each other up. It's just to say, this is what we believe and this is where we can go. At that point, if you want to lock me up, you can lock me up. And the reason we don't get persecuted is because we don't stand up for anything. We have lost Sundays. Christians now, I mean, we have, you know, the human rights of Canada. And how many times do we say, I can't, I can't come to church on Sunday because I'm working? And you go, well, if you actually wanted to come, you could. Because you can't get fired. You just tell your employer you're going to church and they say, well, you can't. You say, well, I'll take you to human rights then. But if we, if we ourselves don't value our worship of God, why should anybody else? If we think so little of our faith, then Jesus isn't Lord. He's an added extra to the rest of our lives because we're busy. And then when we actually, we, you know, we deny Jesus because he didn't give me the meal I asked him or my, he, I'm not a, I'm not being critical. I'm just kind of going, why would anybody be compelled to follow Jesus with a witness that is so anemic? It's miserable though. 
But my, my point here is not to actually, like 20 years ago, I probably would have stopped there and now we all feel guilty and we're going to go home. Thank you very much. <laughs> That's not the point. But like any situation and doctor, if you don't diagnose the condition, how can you find a solution? Why is it? What did Jesus say? If you're lukewarm, I'll spit you out of my mouth. Well, that sounds very judgmental. He just says, you know, I died on the cross for you. You hold back all the time. You negotiate with me all the time. Try to cut deals. I gave you everything. And that's why Peter was crying on the shore because he messed up. And he had to go through what's going to be important. Who are you eventually going to serve? That's why our lives go through cycles because as mine has gone through, having to rediscover and recommit again and again, God, you are right gone through many times where I've had to learn that again because I took it into my own hands or I wanted this or I wanted that and he is God and he doesn't say oh John I feel sorry for you if you whine a little longer I'll give it to you I tried it I've told you it didn't work I cried and I stomped and I walked off and I said well I'll never see you again and he said I can't lose sight of you but have a nice trip I mean he is incredibly tender and incredibly kind but he's not a soft touch. As C.S. Lewis said, he's like a lion and a lamb. The way that you get to persecution is the way that everything happens in life. It's really simple. Think of a parent and think of a child. That's how this woman came to to the Supreme Court. Think of a parent and think of a child. And when something is going to harm my child, the parent rises up. And if my child is sick and needs a kidney, I'll give it a kidney. The parent's love is such, and it cannot be put into words, I will lay down my life for my child. Why do you do it? It's my child. Why do you do it? It doesn't make sense. It's my child. That looks like persecution of some kind. It's called suffering. The only kind of persecution that God actually wants is an offering of love that releases a response that might cause you to suffer. And then you say as the disciples, I am proud to suffer with Jesus in his name. To think about this in abstract is too difficult. It's too difficult to get from here to there. So that's why in this uh, thinking about persecution, I went to the story that we read today. But before that, I just uh, am reminded of something to, to just keep us sober. If you Google Christian persecution 2016 you will find that in our lifetime and in the world right now there's more persecution happening than there ever has in history. Christian persecution is at an historic high thanks to the global rise of religious fundamentalism most notably by radical Islam. Christian charity Open Doors has found 
persecution has been the biggest rise in countries such as Pakistan and Eritrea where radical Islam is on the rise, but North Korea still tops the list with its systematic oppression of Christians. More than 100 million Christians are being persecuted globally. And more than 80% of that persecution is down to religious fundamentalism of some kind. At least 7,000 Christians have been killed for their faith in the last year alone, up from 4,000 in 2014, the report notes. But it admits that the figures likely be significant underestimate, as it does not include murders in Iraq, Syria, and North Korea, where violent persecution of Christians has become the norm. North Korea, where citizens are required to, required to revere their leader, remains the most dangerous place on earth to be a Christian. It is estimated that around 70,000 Christians are currently imprisoned in labor camps, while others who worship in secret risk death if they are discovered. An open-door partner working with 12 families in North Korea reported they have only one Bible in the whole group and each family must take turns to borrow it. They hide the Bible in a secret place once a month. Uh, once a month, three families get together and worship together. Once a year, all believers get together in a mountain valley to worship and have secret fellowship. And if I were to show you, if you Google Persecution Christians 2016 and then you look under images, I can't show you the images. They're too graphic. Charred bodies, beheaded girls, and everything in between. Because of Christianity, crucified, hangings, brutality. Very much like the Roman times, actually. So with that in mind, let's watch this little video that was on our Alpha course this last week. It's kind of silly, but it's quite funny and sometimes maybe quite real. Luke chapter 7. I think I haven't seen this before, but this is to me part of the way that you come to a place of being willing to go further with Jesus. Jesus is at supper with Simon the Pharisee. Simon is obviously having Jesus as a guest because he likes having the important people in towns and celebrities to, to, to dinner because it makes him look good. He's probably wanting to see if Jesus is all he claims to be or maybe he wants to argue with him and find out uh, a little bit more about him or pull the rug from under him and say you're a fraud. Who knows? And while they're having their meal or while they're engaged, this woman comes in and she stands by Jesus and then she starts sobbing and everybody in the room, because they live in community of a village, know who she is. I don't know who would have slept with her in that room, but maybe some of the men had. And that, oh my word, Mary's here. There's going to be a scene. And she draws close to Jesus and stands by his feet and she's carrying something and, and then she starts crying and it gets worse and worse. She pretty much gets hysterical. She sobs. She cries all over his feet. She pours this ointment over him. It's wafts through the air. The dinner party is totally destroyed. We didn't have this on the menu or the plan. There's a lot of noise. There's a lot of sniffling. And, and Simon's beside himself. 
And Jesus seems to be cool with it all. And Simon thinks to himself, if this man were a prophet, he would know who is touching him and what kind of woman she is. She is a sinner. We cast these people out. That was the last time Simon had seen her. But this woman wasn't breaking into this dinner party because she'd never met Jesus before. She was searching out the first man in her life who had ever actually looked at her and responded to her like a woman without sex. And something in Jesus had so touched her that she had actually been delivered probably of seven demons, but she had been delivered from whatever it was that was driving or broken in her. And she was saying, you have changed my life and I still don't understand what's going on. I don't have words. I just know I don't want to lose sight of you ever. Because I just smelled life like those men on the Emmaus Road. I just smelled life and truth. And I, can't, I don't have words. I'm not sophisticated. I just know what I know that I know. And so she pursues it. And she pursues it into this room where dignity is meant to be important and she has none anyway. And she's kind of had it restored but she doesn't know how to save face and she's desperate and she, she stands in front of Jesus and everything just comes out of her. The, 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 the pain, the gratitude, the longing. And she's in that place where she says, I, I don't think I care what other people think anyway because what they think of me is already bad. I'm not even sure if he thought. And what she was scared of if she had time to stop and think about it would have been Simon's attitude which was what it was, which was, what is this slut doing in my house? And what's he doing touching my guest? And if my guest knew who he, she was, we, what is going on here? But God, the Lord of the universe, was having dinner with Simon. And the slut who was touching his feet, he was smiling at him saying, Woman, I love you. You're forgiven. I receive your worship. And so Jesus looks around at Simon and he says, Simon, it's something to tell you and he tells him the story of the person who's been uh, lent 500 denarii and the one who is 50 and which one of them will love him more for the forgiveness and Simon who's looking at teaching says as an issue I suppose the one who had the bigger debt forgiven and Simon's still living in his head trying to find the right answer and, and Jesus says you have answered correctly and then in his wonderful way he sucker punches him. And these words, I think, are what will cause us to be persecuted or not persecuted. He turned towards the woman and said to Simon, Do you see this woman? Do you see this woman? Do you see this woman? Or do you see a prostitute? Or do you see somebody who's a sinner? Or do you see all kinds of other things? Do you see this woman? And he knows the answer. It's evident that you don't. And then he says to Simon, really, he says, do you see this woman? Simon, I'm not going to say this in so many words, but Simon, I see you. And he says to him, I came into your house and you do, did not give me any water for my feet, but she wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You did not give me a kiss, 
but this woman from the time I entered has not stopped kissing my feet. You did not put oil on my head, but she poured perfume on my feet. Therefore I tell you, her many sins have been forgiven, as her great love has shown. But whoever has been forgiven little, loves little. Then Jesus said to her, your sins are forgiven, probably for the fortieth time. And the other guests began to say among themselves, who is this who even forgives sins? Jesus said to the woman, your faith has saved you, go in peace. Do you see this woman? See, Jesus isn't calling us to stand on the corner for issues. He's calling us to see people as he sees them. And when we see people as he sees them, we will be able to do nothing other than to respond to them as if they were our own children. We have become very good at closing our hearts to people. We have become very good to say the only people that matter in my life are my family. Or the only person that matters in my life is me. So people, when they see you and experience you, don't feel seen. They feel talked at. They feel ignored. They feel words but no love. They feel presence but no power. Because I want to get you right without dirting my hands. I want to give you advice without having to cross the street. I want to call somebody else to look after your problems so I don't have to put you on my donkey and take you to a place and pay for your accommodation because I don't have enough for both of us and I don't want to give up my lunch at Boston Pizza. Do you see this woman? Do you see this man? You have men and women and children in your circle of influence who you're not seeing. You're seeing like Simon. You put a label on them because they did something wrong or they said something wrong and now they are unclean in your eyes and you have these big conditions and big platitudes or big self-righteous behaviors that justify your behaving like an absolute idiot in the name of Jesus as opposed to open your eyes and your ears and see that person. And then what? Then you'll have to maybe have a conversation. Maybe you'll have to give them something. Maybe you'll have to do something. Maybe you'll have to be the hands and feet of Jesus. I don't know. And what would that be like? We could change the whole atmosphere of Port Alberni if we just went in this community and served and loved people unconditionally. Including me. I'm not putting it this, I'm just saying. Because we're spending all our time asking God to do things in the valley, but we just go, not me, thank you. Not on Saturday. Not on Friday, not on this time. I'm, I'm busy. I'm busy. So Jesus gets whatever's left over after all the stuff that I do. And if he's lucky, I'll even turn up on Sunday. Because I'm busy. I'm not trying to spoil your day. I'm just saying awkward talk at a water cooler isn't going to cut it in restoring Canada to Jesus or bring Port Alberni back to the Lord. 
It's not about guilt. It's about hunger and thirst for something more meaningful in my life. I mean, imagine Jesus saying, I can pour my life out through you in extraordinary ways. And like Luther, when he, he, he nailed his theses on the door, he said, I can do no other. Nothing brings me life like serving Jesus. Nothing brings me life like seeing that woman for who she really is and drawing that out and calling that out of her so that she starts walking in confidence. Nothing makes me come alive like seeing her come into this community and saying, I have found Jesus. Nothing, nothing comes close. She who was dead is alive again. Now we've got to nurture and look after her. We're not just going to have a scalp here. We're going to actually nurture and look after and invite her out for supper. And we're going to make sure that she's protected so she can grow strong. And that takes community and people with generosity and openness. Do you see that woman? Do you see that man? Do you see that child? Do you see that situation? And do you say, well, what can I do? There is no sacrifice. It's not in my vocabulary. Imagine if we could see better, talk less, serve more, how we might come alive. And the things that we're asking God to do in our lives, He'll give other people eyes to see. And He will meet us. But if our eyes are always on ourselves and our own situation and our own stuff, and I will, I will see her when you see me. Well, he sees you and he says he loves you. You know when, I'm finishing with this, just because the buzz of cheerfulness here is, is, is amazing. But I mean, I I'm, it's a deep word. It's a deep word today. And it's, it's, it's not a negative word. I hope it's much more of a challenging word that brings us to life, quite honestly. It's not about condemning. I mean, I need to hear this word as much as I need to give it. But it is about saying, how's it going? It is about calling us up to something. If your focus, whenever you have an opportunity to do anything, is, oh, I can't, I'm not ready, it's basically a negative one that actually draws attention to who you're not then you qualify for God to actually work in you. Why? Because he said, my grace will be sufficient in your weakness. And God already has, has dealt with the fact that we can't be relied upon. He's already dealt with the fact we're rather inept. And he's d- really dealt with the fact that we, we're always making excuses. So he says, I just want to sort of anoint all the excuses with, my grace will be sufficient in your weakness what somebody said. 2 Corinthians 12.9 is a key verse. The Lord says, My grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. I believe this to be a vital biblical principle. His power is not made perfect in our strength, but only in our weakness. This is true of the whole of the Christian life, and especially true in the realm of the supernatural. God puts his treasure in our jars of clay, and the life seeps out through the cracks. And what Canada needs is people who love with an extraordinary peace and power and passion. And if people want to, we don't have to go to the lions in Canada. We will go to court. We will not be uh, persecuted by lions. We will be 
resisted by legal procedure. But we're not looking for legal procedure. We're just looking to serve Jesus and honor him. But eventually it might lead to, are you willing to? I don't know what that means. But I do know something. If we don't see her who is here, we won't serve him out there with any guts at all. If we don't actually begin to grow in saying, Lord, let me push through my discomforts, we will have no impact out there because you'll be taken out of the water cooler. So I think God wants to encourage us this morning, believe it or not. He wants to encourage us in terms of where are you? Are you the, you know, some of us might need to ask him to give us a new and fresh revelation of just what he has done for us. We might not have the personality of the woman who comes and weeps over his feet, but all of us can know a sense of gratitude and awe 